0: Welcome once again to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We continue to present to you members of our community that through twists and turns have led phenomenal lives that have both contributed in many ways to our society but also through sharing their stories, can help future generations to learn from their experiences to help others navigate through their own challenges. I hope that you continue to enjoy these stories about your neighbors and friends that make up our fantastic community. We want to again thank the following people whose support allows us to bring you these broadcasts. Leeds and son fine jewelers who while being part of our community for over 75 years also supports so many of our charities and events within the bighorn community and the entire coachella valley bighorn properties who provide unparalleled service for your real estate needs that is based on their over 30 years of experience handling exclusively the special aspects that make up the unique qualities of our Bighorn community. All of their energy goes into this community. Back Nine Greens, who makes works of art that will enhance your property and your golf game. Dominic Nappy and his staff will give you the individual attention to ensure your satisfaction and Corliss Estate Wine, whose award-winning wines are a product of old-world techniques with new-world fruits, available for your enjoyment in both the poorhouse and the steakhouse. My name is Marty Lockman and I have the honor to continue to talk with the great members of our community that share their stories with us in a way that gives us all an appreciation for the people that make up our family here at Bighorn. Today's guest is Jeff Hatfield, who with his wife, Janet, have been part of the Bighorn community since 2017. Jeff has had a varied and successful career, and i believe his involvement both in business and the academic community will give us some great insights into many of the issues we have faced in our recent history and look forward to what lies ahead but let's let jeff share his story which starts in indianapolis jeff
1: thanks for being here it's a pleasure to be here this morning with you marty
0: great jeff and and again As we have in all of our podcasts, we want to start at the start and move right on through your life.
1: Fantastic. If you'd like, I can start uh, in Indianapolis. I grew up in a transition neighborhood, sort of not quite downtown, but not out in the suburbs either, in a 900-square-foot house. Recollections I have from that time of my life quite early, I think fall into three categories— one you know in contrast to what today's life is like and we were just talking a few minutes ago about you know a thousand channels on TV and etc back then there there wasn't any of that so the first recollection i have is just it's a 900 square foot house there's no room to do anything in, in, inside so everything was outside whether it was playing ball in the streets shooting hoops it's indiana every boy has to play basketball running around tag etc just being outside playing in the dirt. That was the early recollection of how to have fun. The second recollection I have from that era, I had an absentee father, I guess biologic father might be the way to describe it. So I really don't have any memories of him. My mother was not a strong-willed person and I had a younger brother. So the second sort of impression I have from all the way back to as far as I can remember was having responsibility for the family. And being head of household, you know, I'm just a seven or eight year old. And so that sense of responsibility is something that's pervasive. I I had a funny thing happen, actually at my mother's passing, we were, all the family was gathered there. And I was telling the story about the hardships that we'd faced as a family back in those days. I was relating how we didn't have access to a car many times, so I'd have to take a wagon and my little brother to go get groceries. And we had to pull that wagon about a mile. And I I remember it as responsibility. And my brother followed me and speaking next. And he goes, it's so funny because I remember that as having a lot of fun, getting pulled to the grocery, (laughs) no matter the weather, and it was great. But that's what I remember, the responsibility of it. And the third thing that I remember that I feel is a blessing for me, both of these, the responsibility and I guess the, the third theme would be street. Uh, again, I, I lived in a transition area. It was always changing. The racial composition, the people that were there, the lifestyles of people there, was, it was more, more city than, than suburb by a long shot. And so I got to be friends with just an enormous range of people, whether from other countries. Again, the, the racial composition, when I graduated high school, it was 90% African-American, so there were just so many people that I got a chance to call a friend that were not didn't look like me. And the other thing that I remember sort of in that street thing, next door, I think in today's world we call it a crack house. Then I think it was called a drug den. But just shooting hoops out in the street, I'd have you know, the druggies come out, working girls, if we know what that means. And that was the community that I was in. And and one of the things that I've learned is not to judge people and not to put labels on people, but I've always sort of carried that innate connection to people that are more of the blue-collar or even lower part of our society and great connection to them, or just an empathy with what goes on in, in the life of people that struggle to make a living. I'm really blessed with that perspective, and again, the perspectives of responsibility. Those are the things that I took away from childhood.
0: When you're growing up in that environment, from my own experience when you're called the man of the house at a very young age that also puts a tremendous amount of anxiety i think at times because you're expected to grow up very very fast did you feel the necessity to do that because you were a care you were taking care of the family yes
1: yeah that's exactly right marty and i think you know it's that balance of the anxiety but You know, stress fuels great things in life. We can look all around us at all the different things that are going on. We can look most recently at the COVID crisis and the inspiration that that fear created across every sector of our lives, whether it be the science and delivering ways to avoid that illness, the political will to do things, it all, stress creates greatness. And that's why I say those things are blessings for me. And I've found that to be true. It's one of the most common elements that I have found over my years with people that have been able to be highly successful is many come from those stressful origins.
0: Also in the neighborhood you were brought up in that you've outlined, was there ever any fear or was it since you were all part of a community, you kind of looked out for each other? (laughs)
1: It was exactly like that and maybe a silly story that I can relate how fear can be measured different ways A friend of mine and I were sitting out on the curb and police showed up on something It turns out two sisters who lived together across the street Got into a pretty big fight and were shooting at each other inside their house And so the police had barricaded one of the sisters in a closet and wanted help moving the other sisters clothes out for a cooling off period And so the policeman said, hey, kids, I'll give you a dollar to go in the house and help us move some clothes. So, you know, open gunfire in there and hostility. You know what my answer was a dollar? Sure, I will. So it was, you know, that was what surrounded us. And again, it was just, that's what it was. And there was a community.
0: When you're in this environment, now you're going to be starting school. What was the scholastic environment in a community like this?
1: The high school that I went to, and even back to the grade school, I think education was clearly in that city and offering a channel to be able to pull oneself out of those environs. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I was able to, uh, in eighth grade, for example, I was allowed to study algebra on my own, just given the high school books and said, you don't go to math class, just teach yourself algebra. When I got to high school, among the classes I was able to take were organic chemistry, obviously physics, things like that. But it was a high school that had invest, it gave a full span of courses, whether they were remedial or standard or advanced. There were opportunities for people to push themselves into those more challenging classes, and that's exactly what I did.
0: Another question that I ask most of the people that come in here, Jeff, is we all had to have jobs because we don't come from any sort of an affluent situation. It wasn't out of wanting to, it was a necessity. You had to be a contributor. What were some of those early jobs that you had?
1: Obviously before 16, I couldn't work in a formal job, but there were a lot of odds and ends jobs that were available. When I turned 16, I started working graveyard shift in a plastics factory. So if you've been to the grocery and seen those those two liter bottles of whatever, Mountain Dew, Coke, Pepsi. I got a chance to make those when I was 16 years old. Also the plastic pallets that you move boxes around on, things like that. So I just worked in that and uh, spent two years doing that graveyard shift. I then moved on to a construction company, starting out digging ditches and moved up through the course of the next three years through various assignments into carpentry and then ultimately a a carpentry foreman, where I had a group of guys working with me. The proud moment from that, Marty, was I had 11 different hammers, and I could explain why I had 11 different hammers. So those were all the things going on, and and it was actually, so I did all of those things while I was going to school. It helped me pay for college, because I didn't have any other assistance uh, from family, of course. It was so fun working those jobs. It was almost a temptation to keep working in construction because every day I could go home saying, wow, I did that today. There was This happened because I worked really hard and there was something tangible to that. The guys that I worked with uh, were sort of the same milk that I, I mentioned I grew up in. Most had been to jail for something or another. Uh, they were a tough crowd, but I just, we got along all so well. We did so many great things together. It was a very pleasurable moment for me doing that real work.
0: But also a work ethic that you learned. But who are your role models as far as the academic side? Because we'll we'll get into your career, but you're working as a carpenter. You're working with your hands. You have a feeling of immediate satisfaction, a job well done. But who did you look at as role models that took you to where you have gotten in the academic arena?
1: There's not a clear answer to that question for me. My academic achievements were born out of seeing academia, seeing education as a way to uh, move out of where I was born. It was a path, uh, and a path that had to be earned each step of the way. If I were to maybe be a little bit more sort of tangential on the question, I can trace a bit of, of my commitment in that uh, back to my grandparents, who were really my idols of childhood. We got to see them on family holidays, a birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, etc. I can describe each of my grandparents maybe briefly. My grandfather was of the era that he participated in World War II— he was, didn't look, anything like me, it was a really tough, strong Popeye forearms. He had fought his way across Europe. I, I don't know this is true, but it was always rumored that he was a boxer at one point in time, certainly could shoot an awesome game of pool and hang out in the bars, have a lot of friends. So he, he had that street cred also, but he was a Renaissance man. He loved the arts. When we would go to his house, sometimes there would be orchestral pieces playing, that he would be just sitting in a chair, eyes closed, lost in the complexities of that orchestral piece. Loved opera. Loved the great classic literature pieces. Would often, when we'd go on a walk together, he would start quoting a poem that he could, he could recite endless stanzas of that poem that he also just adored in his life. He was a dedicated family person. Uh, he was also always looking out for the interests of others. He was a ward chairman for the Democratic Party as it existed 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and perhaps not the same as today. But, you know, he was always walking around the neighborhood. How can he help? How can he serve the people that were there? So that was a tremendous idol to have as a youngster in search of, you know, who to share responsibility with. And then my grandmother was in total charge of the house and was sort of the manners, politeness, how to treat people expert that I learned from. And both of them shared power equally within the entire family writ large. So cousins, et cetera, that I got a chance to meet, they were really the defining... An and aggregating force of an otherwise sort of unconnected childhood. It was really neat. And there were a couple of great lessons, if I could share those, that I, that I got. It, you know, it's kind of funny, Marty, how one little moment in time can stand out as having so much significance. One little moment, maybe just a couple of minutes. But I was doing something at my grandfather's house. He had asked me if I would help him outside, and he wanted me to sweep the leaves off of the driveway, and I'm guessing I was maybe seven years old. I could barely hold the broom, but I did it as a seven-year-old would do. I didn't want to do it. I just said yes because I thought that was probably the right answer, and so I probably did it not a very good job. And so I said, told my grandpa I was done, and he looked around at the driveway, and instead of saying, "Well, that really wasn't very good," or allowing me to go inside, I had to sit down with him and have a talk, and he talked to. Asked me if I was proud of the job that I did and asked me if I thought I did a good job on it. And I responded truthfully, no. And we talked about how one could be defined by the work they do and that it was incumbent on a person that a job worth doing, and this is the quote I remember from that moment, a job worth doing is a job worth doing well. And then he asked me if I wanted to take another shot at the driveway, and of course I did, and really did as as, as good as I could as a seven-year-old pushing that broom around. But it was a thought that became a defining theme for me and everything that I've done is, don't commit to something unless I'm really going to put everything I can into it, to do it really to the best of my ability. And so it does two things. It, the things I work on, I feel I do get the best out of myself, but also I leave a lot of things alone that, that other people should be responsible for and can be. and So another theme now of, of me today is that I have a lot of people who say, I'm one of the most empowering leaders that they've ever worked with because I trust them and stay out of their business. Maybe one other, I mentioned I didn't have a father. My grandparents love to play cards. There's a card game, particularly called Bridge. If you know it, it, it's closer to chess than checkers. It's very complex. And so, again, at a very young age, uh, my grandparents were trying to get me to be the fourth. You have to have four people. So, my mother, my grandparents, and me. The way they played it, they expected me to memorize every card played every time a hand was dealt. And my grandfather would quiz me, okay. What are all the cards that have been played? Who played them? And then we talk about why did each person play those cards? And what did that probably mean about the hand they were holding, the strategy they were pursuing? And so I don't know if that's what to thank for the very good memory that I have, but it was a discipline. And just memorizing things, being able to hold on to that, but then look beyond the knowledge and trying to interpret why do people act the way that they do? Do they have a weak hand, a strong hand? Are they trying to be forceful? trying to be cooperative, all those things sort of express themselves in a game of bridge. Rightly or wrongly, I attribute a good bit of that to my success negotiating either for buying or selling companies. I've done a lot of negotiating through the course of my career, and maybe that's where the foundation started with with playing cards with my grandparents.
0: And this is two people that I wouldn't think had a high degree of formal education, but he certainly knew about life. And the lessons that he did teach you have served you well. So it's not always about the stuff we learn in books. It's about the stuff we learn by living life and having mentors, especially with you. Your grandfather had defined roles. A successful company works pretty well when everybody has a defined role in what's success. But his male influence on you, I got to believe, as you've already outlined, had an impact on you throughout your entire life yes
1: absolutely marty
0: you're in high school what were your aspirations at that time i know you wanted to get out and that's probably the driving force as you've said but did you have any specific aspirations at that point in your life
1: well what i knew at that time was that i was very good in the sciences so stem I guess it would be called today. So as I was leaving high school, actually enrolling, I needed to go to a state university because the cost of tuition obviously makes it at least possible, not without hard work and a lot of sacrifice, but in any way possible. So I enrolled at Purdue, and I actually started in chemical engineering. That's where I enrolled because it seemed to suit the skill set so that's where i was accepted into the chemical engineering program even before i got to the university for my freshman year i had some reservations about that because there is a piece of me that wants to help the world help people i couldn't tie the thread between chemical engineering how am i helping society How, how am i helping definitively people so as i looked at other professional pursuits within purdue the school of pharmacy seemed like a a much better fit for me. There was a direct involvement with improving people's lives, extending, enhancing people's lives through medicine. And that seemed like a really excellent pursuit. So I enrolled, I shifted over to a uh, pre-pharmacy curriculum. So the pharmacy school itself, you had to gain admission even within Purdue. You couldn't just enroll and it had to be accepted. And actually the acceptance rate was, I think one in 10 perhaps. But I got into that. I was accepted into the pharmacy program and then started moving through my college career, doing very well academically. But then I got to another dilemma, Marty. Pharmacy is, and particularly back in that day, I'm gonna grossly oversimplify, but it was dispensing prescriptions in a local pharmacy or it was working in a hospital making up the IV bags that we see you know from a from a hospital set and if i do the math on that if i can dispense one prescription every 5 minutes then i can help 12 people an hour, and over the course of a day, I can help 150 people. Along with that, it's not just putting a label on a bottle and counting to 100. There was counseling patients, making sure that that they understood what to do. And I got that, but it wasn't gonna change a lot over my whole career, and it was still limited, the number of people that I could see. And I started shifting over to, what if I could play a role in actually discovering new drugs that could be even better than what we have available to us today? How would I do that? Where would I do that? And so I settled about halfway through pharmacy school on wanting to go into the industry, to big pharma. Now, things haven't changed a lot today versus what they were back then. Academia and business tend to be different camps. It can be a we versus them phenomena. And that was true for me. Professors that I talked to about how do I shape my pharmacy career so that I can move into discovering drugs, developing drugs, discouraged me. And in fact, one professor put it really bluntly, saying, Jeff, I'm really sorry that we wasted an admission spot in the School of Pharmacy on you. That was challenging, but it didn't change who I was or what I felt was the right course for me. And so I kept asking people (laughs) until I found someone who said, you know, if that's what you wanna do, you probably need to graduate here and then go get an MBA. That's what you should do. Marty, that took 90 seconds And from that, I went back to my dorm room and I wrote a 10-year plan for what needed to happen. I needed to graduate school. I knew I would have to work a lot to be able to afford to go back to school again. I knew I needed to get into a top program. And then I knew I needed to move myself in the direction in, in, in that next company, or my first company, actually, I guess, into a track so that I could actually have an influence over discovering, developing, delivering new medicines. Marty, over the next 10 years, I hit every one of those markers. I was really fortunate. I was a registered pharmacist, so I worked two full-time jobs. So I worked about 88 to 90 hours a week for the next three years, made enough money back, paid off the the undergraduate loans, was accepted into a, a school called the Wharton School. Because I was such a rare combination of pharmacist and MBA, I was lucky to have a lot of different offers from pharmaceutical companies, had my choice and was able to get into something really, really unique.
0: When you're in the academic arena, did they feel you were a sellout because you were going to go into big pharma and that's about money. It's not about treating people or being involved with an individual. What was their reason for not believing that that was the right thing to do?
1: So I think you've just described it, Marty. But I I think what you're touching on is a phenomena, again, to play it very broadly in the dynamics of today across society, it is so easy to fall into the tribalism of we versus them. You can fill in the blanks on either side of that in any frame that you want to think about it, whether it's... Democrats, Republicans. It's it's so easy to create antagonism in the world. That's a natural one between academia and commercial business. It comes from a lack of knowing. Uh, My experience in the pharmaceutical companies was nearly universally the people there were trying to enhance the lives of people in the world, of patients in the world. That is the extremely vast majority of people that I've grown up with within the business world, people trying to do the right thing and help. That's one of the most satisfying pieces to now looking back on my career is is my own personal involvement in helping people around the globe with different diseases where I've had a material impact on what got delivered, how it was able to make its way into people, into physicians' hands, into into patients' lives. It's such a wonderful industry that way.
0: See, I think that's an important message that I think is probably going to continue. But the cynicism right now says that you're just out to make a profit. You're just out to make money. That's not the reason behind what goes on inside
1: those companies. No, it's not. I would just say this silly thing. If the pharmaceutical industries are so incredible at making profits since we all have some money to be able to invest in companies, why isn't that the first choice to invest in if they are so profitable? In fact, that industry is is not even in the top ten to invest in in most people's portfolio. It's not really as profitable as we think. Where's the money going? Drug prices are high. Where does the money go? I don't know the exact number, uh, but it would be measured in the hundred billion plus range of how much money gets put into figuring out the next set of advances across the full spectrum of cancer, autoimmune disorders, uh, CNS disorders, depression, Alzheimer's, et cetera, fighting coronavirus. There are lists and lists and lists of all the different maladies that affect mankind, and we have made stunning improvements on that over the course of time, but it takes the investment in that to get there. You know, this is a stunning fact, but how much, because we talk about aging, and I think we are possibly headed towards some significant changes in enhancing the longevity of the human species. That science exists, still very formative, not ready for prime time, but we're making advances there. But if, if we just look backwards in time, The average lifespan in 1900 was about 46 years old. Now the average lifespan is about 85, 86, 88. So the human species has doubled lifespan in the past 100 years or so. Can we do it again? Maybe. All those things take money. For every drug that we see as a society, approved by FDA, accessible to patients around the globe, behind that one drug has been about uh, somewhere between 2 and 3 billion dollars of investment to to make sure that it works that it's safe that we throw away all the things that are close but not exactly right and do all the trials correctly it's a bunch of time it's 10 plus years 10 to 15 years and it's 2 to 3 billion dollars and that's where those those profits go It's not really profit. It's money put back into research.
0: Now, that's the philosophy when you start the first company that you've just were mentioning before. Tell us about that. How did that come about? What was that company all about?
1: I spent the first 20 years in this big pharmaceutical company and advanced to a level, um, I think I said earlier, I was one of the top executives there. But my career path then was to move to Park Avenue in New York City in this very plush office with mahogany walls. And I thought that sounded like the worst job in the world. It was so far away to my touchstone of trying to help patients that I had to opt out. So I I went the opposite direction and went out into the biotech world into a company that had, I think, about, Uh, Just a few employees had a brilliant idea, and this is now almost 25 years ago, was using artificial intelligence and machine learning, the very, now these would be rudimentary grade school or maybe kindergarten level as compared to today's progress, but back then was an incredibly exciting pioneering idea, applying artificial intelligence to drug discovery And what it enabled us to do, in essence, is to construct in silico, in the computer, a model of a protein that causes disease. And we could, in fact, in in this company, we built a 3D room with this gigantic screen and 3D glasses, just like going to the movies, where a group of scientists put on these glasses and we could go into a protein and look around and figure out how to manipulate a compound in that protein space to be able to affect its function and either upregulate it, meaning make it do more, or downregulate it, make it do less if it's causing the disease. And we could, we could figure out how to do that. And I'm skipping a whole bunch of technical stuff but it was just amazing, and as we pioneered that, you know, word kind of got around. We've had members of the U.S. Senate come take a look at it. We'd had uh, college deans take a look at it. We'd had uh, people from many of the major pharma companies come take a look at it, and it was really successful in advancing a number of compounds in different therapeutic areas, a couple very important ones. Actually, one I'll highlight, most tear-jerking success that we had there, there is a cancer of infants that is based upon uh, what's called a Menin-MLL rearrangement. And again, I won't go into the technical details of that. How it plays out is that parents lose their child at, at somewhere between two and three years of age. And there's just nothing that can be more heart-rending than that. And we found a way to to change that. And it was so exciting. I remember a moment we, we were far enough along the discovery work to take it out to a leading pediatric oncologist just to get his opinion on whether this made sense or not, whether we were on the right track. And the oncologist sat across from us. We finished presenting and he said, I'm going to tell you what, I need you to finish these two experiments and then I am going to the FDA with you and I'm going to demand that they act as fast as they can on this incredible discovery because it's... It's just so needed, and this is so important, and this is brilliant. So that's a product that's going to get to market in the not-too-distant future. As I told you, it's 10 or 15 years cycle time to get these things forward. That'll be available in the not-too-distant future. It's no longer my company. That company was bought by a company called Allergan. And because of the, the depth and quality of the science... Uh, but it was a really cool way to get started in the biotech field is to do something so revolutionary. And, and that's what I will tell you, Marty, the thing that, again, that's so exciting to me and, and why I'm so proud of the career I've been able to experience is those things have happened just routinely is finding a little magic, pushing the envelope of what's possible through technology and science to be able to find these stunning differences in, in patients' lives. And if you want me to, I can tell you a really powerful one that I got a chance to work on. Please do. Some of these are are quite simple in concept. I'm gonna take the listeners back to when I was in Big Pharma. It was a company called Bristol Myers Squibb. And around 35 years of age, I was in charge of the immunology and virology business within Bristol Myers Squibb. And as part of that was the portfolio of medicines for people living with HIV. Again, my touchstone has always been thinking about the patient, the end value in someone's life. And so we were working on different things. Now, back in this time, a diagnosis of HIV positive was just transitioning from being a death sentence to maybe we can manage it. That's what it was for a patient in their, their journey. And so I, was, I spent a lot of time learning what that patient journey was like. I spent a lot of time with patient advocates, patient activists, opinion leaders, etc. And we were working on ways that could, could more powerfully fight the virus Uh, particularly to protect against the mutations of the virus i think people can relate to that with the mutations we see going on with COVID right now the virus wants to escape therapy and will change to be able to make itself more viable same thing happens with hiv so we were working on very scientific academic solutions to an infection problem as i was spending time with patients a remarkable thing happened i was at one evening dinner sitting with a group of patients And I said, Look, I've got the resources at Bristol Meyer Squibb. We're really committed to this. What can we do to make your life better? Here are the kinds of things we're working on. And the person sitting next to me said, Paused, looked at me very seriously, and said, Do you want me to tell you the truth? Please, please do. And he said, "I, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate what you're talking about. But I want to tell you, my life and your life, Jeff, are really different. And this is how it's important. When I finish a work week, I go out to parties, and I might not make it back from Friday afternoon. I might not get back home again until Sunday night, Monday. Don't know. And right now, treating my HIV infection means I've got to take 20 pills with me. If I want to have enough to last through the weekend, and if I've got a pocket full of 20 pills, everybody around me is going to know that I'm HIV positive, and that's going to ruin my life. So I just don't. I don't take the medicine. And so all you want to do, Jeff, about this more powerful, better able to avoid the mutational shift, that's not what my life is. I need one pill once a day. That's what I need. If you want to do something for people, if you're serious, that's what you would do. It was just like, that's it. That's my life now. I am going to do that. And so I went back to to the scientists and talked to them about it. And they said, that's impossible, Jeff. And I didn't like that answer, so I thought about it more. Well, what if we do this and this and this? Nope, that's impossible. Okay. Well, what if we reach out to our competitors and say, this is a call to action. We need to do it. Business development, how about that? Can we go do that? No, Jeff, that's impossible. And I was so frustrated, Marty. I was so frustrated because I'd already committed to myself that that's it. That's the moment I was looking for. That's the cause that I wanted to attach myself to. And everybody's telling me it's impossible. And so it came to a head in a meeting of a number of executives within the company. And I was frustrated. And so I kind of interrupted the meeting and I said, let me just get this straight. It's impossible. It cannot be done. Do we all agree on that? Yes. Yes. Second question, since it's impossible, does anybody care if I waste my time on it? Can I just have full license to do whatever I want? Because it's impossible. So it can be no threat. Can I just have full license and authority? Yes. So a few days later, I got on an airplane. I flew out to our principal competitor in the field of HIV medicine, a company called Gilead Biosciences. I made my case, I got an audience with their CEO, and made my case of why this was a societal imperative that we had to solve. And whatever words I came up with on the way out there must have worked because he agreed, even though we were strict competitors in the field. And so we spent some time together, his lieutenant, the chief operating officer, and I walked around the courtyard of Gilead for the next several hours talking about how we would do that. And in in truth, Marty, and uh, back to the profit story. This was going to help Bristol-Myers Squibb in one aspect and hurt probably e- at least equally in another aspect of our competition. But it was the right thing to do. I don't know how it would affect Gilead's. But we agreed to to not raise any prices, but that we were going to do all the technical work to make it happen. Took another year and a half But we produced that product, one pill once a day, for people living with HIV. It became the number one selling drug globally for people living with HIV. It became one of the top 20 drugs in the world in sales because it was so popular. It solved what was really the problem in patients' lives. And that's something that I can always take pride in. The two things of, I love when people tell me something's impossible, because it always is. It just takes determination to get there. But really being able to have a material effect on so many people, particularly so many people that were suffering under the veil of being hidden from normal life because of the stigma, being able to really do something that mattered was so cool.
0: Well, there's a couple of things that as the layman, I wonder... To say it bothers me might be overly dramatic, but isn't it the job of the scientific community to say it's not impossible rather than that it's impossible? It just amazes me that that there would be a huge number of people within that community that wants to help people to say anything's impossible.
1: I, I think in that sense, it's an impossibility of perspective. Or a self-imposed impossibility. What the scientists believe, because it's what they were working on, is they've got a virus. They know it mutates, and they know their work right today is going to benefit because we can we can cover that virus, surround that virus with the continuing work that they were already doing. We can make it so that it can't escape therapy, and so. Their impossibility was, I don't want to stop doing something that I believe has value to do something that you say has value. And, and that was it, really. It was the impossibility of resources, not of, of and, it, and it was a bit technical too. And, you know, something that is important about science is that it's easy to, to and maybe the rest of the world, it's easy to dismiss things as impossible. When what you really mean is it's too hard. It seems too hard.
0: And the other thing is you listen to people with the disease. And isn't that just common sense? (laughs) That because you can get lost in any project, you get lost in the ivory tower of of doing this. But when you get out into that community and talk to these people, they're going to give you the feedback that's necessary for you to move forward in a positive way.
1: That's absolutely right. It's the end goal in mind, and what is the end goal? You know, My tagline is, extend and enhance human life. That, that's my personal tagline. And so it's having that as the perspective of the end goal and not getting caught up in the steps in between or, or, or smaller chunks of that that I think is important.
0: So another question from my naive perspective. Talk to me about why it takes so long to get a, a solution to market. Because you said it takes 15 years well that's 15 years that is that bureaucracy is that part of the science why does it take so long
1: Yeah combination of things let me try and and you stop me Marty if it gets if it gets awful I'll try and just outline what it, how does it what what does it take to actually discover and, and develop and deliver a drug So it starts with identifying a protein, something that causes disease. We have to know the starting point first before we can get to a finish line. Right now, I would tell you, we as a global life science community can solve about 10% of what we know causes disease. 90% of the proteins, the targets that cause disease, we know they do, we know it definitively, We can't do anything about it. Those are called undruggable targets. It's 90% of what we know. So picking one of those targets that hasn't been solved, we have to figure out how to actually interact with that protein. And there are other therapies, gene editing, et cetera, that is going to be outside of what I'm describing. I'm just talking about a pill that shows up in your medicine cabinet. So we have to figure out how to interact with that. We have to find a way to grab onto that protein. A protein looks like, if you want to imagine something, if you've seen a sponge come up from the bottom of the ocean floor with all different contours, all different little crevices on it. That's kind of what a protein looks like in our body. And every cell can have tens of thousands of protein, different proteins in it, doing different things that keep us alive and keep us healthy. So we're trying to figure out how to interact with that sponge. Well, even finding one thing that can attach is hard. And then we're trying to find something that attaches and then alters that protein's function up or down. So we may, as an industry, and this is certainly what I do all the time, it may be that we try 10,000 to 100,000 different chemical structures to try and find the one that interacts. And it's very complex and there's so much more to it than what I'm describing. But let's just say we start with an infinite number of chemical structures, try to get down to something that's perhaps reasonable and maybe from 100,000 we can find a couple that will sort of do what we want. And then it's a battery of tests that move up in increasing complexity from just interacting with chemicals or proteins, eventually moving their way if it looks really promising into animal studies. And then so many fall out because it actually doesn't work when we get to animals or it's not safe. And then as we move that along, it's higher species of animals. And then ultimately, if we've gone through, let's say now five years of that work, of every day working, trying to find it, and it's seems to be safe in animals, then we start moving into the regulatory environment. I would say two things. The pharmaceutical industry, I believe, is the most regulated industry in the world. The second thing I'd say is, and that's a really good thing. We need that regulation. We need the standardization to make sure that, first of all, we do no harm, and that we actually do deliver the benefits that we anticipate as we start designing these things. But then the clinical trials are very stepwise. It's very stage-gated to ensure we never get ahead of ourselves. We never expose people to undue risk, Um, first healthy volunteers and then patients. And we wanna make sure it really works and it's really safe. And, And that's what takes the next 10 years. It's being careful. It's being thoughtful and reflective and interacting with the FDA all along the way or regulatory body if it's in another country. But it it seems slow, but I think it's some For the right reasons. For the right reasons, Marty, yeah. So
0: now you've moved on to another company. Tell us about it.
1: I'm going to sort of explode it because following the first uh, company that I worked at, I've been able to not only run companies, but also be on the boards. And boards of directors in biotech are advisory. So we're able to help with strategy, help with science, And they're they're sort of part of the consultancy team of a biotech. So I've had the privilege of working with companies that were in gene therapy space, uh, acute spinal cord injury company, working with multiple companies in oncology, in metabolic disorder, in aging. Uh, Some phenomenal work there that's still very pioneer in stage. Some companies that, two that are particularly relevant, I think, right now. One is a company that was at the forefront of combating COVID. Uh, There are three ways that we have available to us today to fight COVID. One is to prevent it with vaccines. We all know that story. Then for a patient that's at very high risk of getting COVID, how do we really protect them? If we have a patient that has already chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, et cetera, and is high risk, uh, maybe elderly, Vaccine's really not enough because people can still get COVID. So how do we protect them from dying? Because if they get the disease, if they get the infection, probably high risk of dying. So I've worked with a company that produces an antibody. Let me take a step back. What's an antibody? When we get a vaccine, our body's immune system produces antibodies to fight the virus that's what a vaccine does. It's very simple. The antibodies are sort of the policemen of our system that go around and anything suspicious, they nail it. If a patient can't produce enough of those antibodies, we can give them antibodies that will fight COVID. And so this is a company that was able to lead the field in creating an antibody that could be given to a high-risk individual and keep them alive. And it has saved, I don't know how many, but magnitude thousands to tens of thousands of people's lives that otherwise had they gotten COVID and nearly everyone has by this point in time has kept them alive. So it's cool fields like that. I've worked in the depression field and and et cetera, but I've touched on a lot of these. The most recent two companies that I'm working with, both I'm I'm now chairman of the board. I mentioned earlier that there are 90% of these drug targets that we just don't know how to drug. One of them is a company that has found science, uh, originating from Scripps Institute over here in La Jolla, uh, San Diego area, that sort of blows that open, that may allow us to drug a bunch of those that are today untouchable, undruggable. It's science that I'm almost certain will win a Nobel Prize. And so I've been working with that company for the past couple of years. It was actually just purchased by Bayer for $2 billion not too long ago. But it has a a huge pipeline of oncology and autoimmune uh, programs that are quite early but are incredibly promising because they're drugging things that have been on the drug discovery intelligentsia's wish list for 10 years. And we're finally breaking through. So that's one really cool company. There's another one that I'm working with that works on what's called the dark genome. 10 years ago, that was called junk DNA. For the DNA that's floating around in all of our systems, scientists 10, 15 years ago couldn't explain what 90% of that DNA did. So what do they do? They call it junk DNA because we can't explain it. So it's junk. Turns out that's probably not true. Probably has a pretty vital role in many things, including disease. And so this is a company that's on the forefront of figuring out through data sciences what that stuff is, how it works in disease, and working on, we found a few things, and working on new therapies that wouldn't even been considered 10 years ago. The, the advances that are going on in science right now are just, uh, for me at least, because that's my field, are just super exciting. I think it's super promising for the, the generations of our future. Maybe not going to be able to help me or you, Marty, but the stuff that's coming is just would blow people's minds.
0: It sounds like it's a real turning point. We used to do things in 10-year increments or we used to do things in 20-year increments. It sounds to me, on um, the things that you're working on now, every day you see new possibilities.
1: 100% true. It's so exciting. I wish there was a way to share that with everybody, maybe a little bit on this podcast, but, but it, it's a very promising and bright future. Well,
0: at least it's very optimistic. <laughs> uh, and, and that with health... That's always extremely important. I mentioned early on that you're also involved in the academic arena. When we talk about these breakthroughs, there has to be people uh, that are involved in that, a new generation. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your experience. I know at Purdue you're involved in, in the academic arena. Tell me a little bit about that aspect.
1: Sure, Marty. So I made the comment earlier about my experience with one professor who said, hey, if you want to go into the industry, here's what you should do. That became a chip on my shoulder. And when I'd gotten to a certain level of success within the industry, I went back to Purdue and and talked to the the College of Pharmacy about reaching out and, and providing assistance if there were other people like me that wanted to move into the industry that I'd be happy to help them in different ways, including sponsoring them turns out there were a handful of people, and we really started thinking about it. We decided to create a novel program within the College of Pharmacy. I became a faculty mem- an adjunct faculty member there, and I designed a course that is entrepreneurship for the doctoral students there. And so that consists of a three-month rotation where they actually leave the college and, and come physically come to work in whatever company that I'm involved with, or one of the companies I'm involved with. And so what I do within that program is, number one, to expose them to what the industry is, because it's not easy to get a picture of that when you're back in academia. So they get a chance to see what life is like really discovering drugs. And the labs that that we have access to are far beyond what academia has access to. So they get to see really modern, advanced equipment, advanced approaches to discovery of drugs. So that's part of it. And we rotate them around through chemistry, biology, analytic chemistry, pharmacology, regulatory, et cetera, CMC, to be able to get a, a broad range of experience so they can find what's right for them. So that's one aspect. But we also do a lot together working on their leadership They are forced to pick projects, present the projects, to think. Academia has taught them to memorize and to recite, less so how to problem solve and how to create. And so that's the focus of the three months. Students have gone through that, and it's been a remarkable transformation, particularly because one of the things that each student has highlighted to me as they've gone through the program is each step of the way, I'll start a session with them saying can I give you feedback and it's important that I ask permission for that first and they all so far have said yes and then I give them very direct feedback and that creates the boundary moment because that typically doesn't happen in academia at least what I'm experiencing it's very challenging for them for me to say this was done really really well this is such and such but this really wasn't good this will never cut it When you move into the real world and you have a job, let's talk about how to work on it. And people feel frightened by that direct feedback, virtually always, but it also becomes the bonding agent between me and the students that I've been able to work with, so much so that... My students have become almost an extended family with them. I get invited to all the weddings. You know, Now 10 years into the program, when somebody changes jobs, I always get the phone call beforehand. Hey, how should I think about this? It's really been profound. And when I started it 10 years ago, they were f- five or six students. They all competed for two slots. Now it's 40 or 50 students that are really interested in it. And the competition is fierce to see who gets the rotations with me on a yearly basis. And I've been able to do some other seminars and fly students to Boston to be able to get that, that bigger sense for the students I can't actually work with. It's compounding every year and it's becoming more of a thing. Even beyond Purdue, we're starting to get recognition in other universities of what a cool program Purdue has. So that's one way I do it. The other way, I'm not exactly on faculty at Harvard Business School, but I am a formal advisor in a fellowship program there. And so this takes... Students uh, who are graduates of Harvard Business School, not yet moved into the business world, who have a passion for life sciences, and they're able to reach into Harvard and find technology that they're interested in or work with a professor there and start a company. What I do there is the advisory board is pick the fellows that get the scholarships, and then each year the advisory members get one student and we build a company. And so I'm in my, I'm approaching my fourth year of that, we've had incredible success. My first student found a brand new and really interesting way to make radiation therapy and cancer way more effective. And that's moving along. My second student had this brilliant idea with the advent of 3D printing of, can we 3D print eardrums for people who have lost their hearing? Turns out we can. She found this company and while we were working together, that company was sold. It was such an awesome idea that a big company stepped in and bought their rights to it before we'd even really gone much further than proving we could do it and forming the company. The third student is working in lipid metabolism in cancer cells and seeing if we can short circuit that, basically starve cancer cells to death and getting ready for the fourth student. But these... Um, it, it won't say kids, but young professionals are so determined, so talented, and so full of commitment. It's just so cool to work with them. And so that's what's really exciting now is I'm able to shift from my own efforts of making these things happen to just helping others do the same thing and, and maybe help get that done a little faster than before.
0: It continues to move forward your mantra of helping people. You sometimes help people through other people. You have conduits that do that. And also it seems to me that you're teaching these people the real world along with it because there are realities, whether it be criticism or whatever it might be, you need to bring them into the real world to make sure that they can maximize their intelligence and maximize their abilities. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about in education. I'm going to go all the way back to the start. carpentry, the things that you were involved in. There's a place for both of these in academia, don't you think? I mean, again, the people that are going to solve a cure for cancer, but also somebody that builds a cabinet. Give me some of your thoughts about academia as it stands right now, because not everybody should get into debt going to college. Some of them should be doing trade schools. What's your feeling about that aspect of it?
1: So I'm pretty outside of my spectrum of competence by even commenting on this. Um, but just as a person, I think you're absolutely right. I'll actually borrow the words of, of my brother-in-law, who is a high school teacher. He lives in Georgia. And the curriculum that, that he is charged with delivering doesn't have enough emphasis on that. And it's something that that he tells me is really, there's so much demand for electricians, plumbers, carpenters in the world, and it's going to be way more profitable than trying to fit the proverbial square peg in a round hole into some academic pursuit when they could be really gifted tradespeople and make a wonderful living. And I think this is something, feels like to me, and again, I'm I'm far from expert, uh, probably bordering on incompetent, but seems like a really obvious solution to how to to create a society with everybody having great value and and doing something productive that they can enjoy.
0: You have such great intellect and expertise in in a number of areas, but let's start with the people that have influenced you most. Tell me who they were.
1: Hmm. You know, Marty, I'm going to say that something that I teach my students, something that I've followed my whole career is that I believe strongly I can learn from every person that I meet. Everyone does many, many things better than me. Everyone has talents that are far better than, than mine in some aspect. Whether it's the, you know, the people I'm playing basketball when I was a little kid or whether it's a Nobel Prize winner, which I work with them, there's somebody that I can learn from every time. And then I've really tried to focus on that. If I think of a couple of moments that, were really definitive on my leadership style. I I can pick two. One was about 40 years ago, I think. Maybe not quite that much. But early in my career, in my big pharma career, I was working in the field of heart disease. Seems silly to say now in today's world, but back then, 35 years ago, cholesterol wasn't treated by physicians. It actually wasn't even really recognized as leading to heart disease. Within Bristol-Myers, we were working on an education program that was a cooperative pursuit with government and with academia and with industry, a a wonderful collaboration. And it was going to be launching something called the National Cholesterol Education Panel and setting out guidelines for, hey, physicians across the country, we should be treating this. It's going to help people stay alive. And so we were working on this campaign, and I... Early, early in my career, I was charged with doing our part from Bristol-Myers Squibb to support that in writing the campaign and how we would communicate. So I had been working for months on, on this campaign, what it would look like, the education program. And I took it to the woman that was in charge of cardiovascular business within Bristol-Myers Squibb. Her name was Joan Keith. And I took her this program. I walked through it, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half presentation, lots of detail, lots of moving pieces, and so then at the end of that, I said, okay, Joan, what do you think? She said, it's fine. Fine? What, what do you mean it's fine? You know, I, we've been working for months on this. We just presented it for an hour, hour and a half to you. What do you mean it's fine? And again, sort of like my grandfather, instead of just a quick answer, she goes, Jeff, let me spend some time with you for a second on what my job is. Now, let's say, Jeff, that there were 10 different things you could have walked in the door and presented to me. Of those 10, there might have been two that were really brilliant, really amazing, really impressive, that I would have wanted to put more resources behind and really just run with. And I would tell you that. But that's not what this is. Now, Jeff, out of the 10 things... There probably could have been three things that you might have developed that were in good faith and made sense to you, but wouldn't work or would be a problem. Three things. That's not what this is. You're fine. You're in the five things that are fine. It's not my job to tell you how to improve it. It's not my job to do any of that. What I'm telling you is it's not one of the top two and it's not one of the bottom three. It's fine. Go do it. And... (laughs) My two takeaways were I'd never thought of a leader having that perspective of it's not her job to tell me how to do the job, my job. It's her job to do different things. So that was one. And the second thing was just walking out of that office with steam pouring out of my ears. Well, what do you mean I did fine work? I want to be one of those top two. So... You know, I called the whole team back together and said, we're throwing all this out and we're shooting for one of the top two. What would it look like to do one of those top two? And we went to work and blah, 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 blah. And the rest of the story is, you know, came back in another month later and she's got, this is really, really good work, way better than before. But the lesson was, what is the job of a leader? It's not to do the subordinates work. That was one really influential. And I would say, again, sort of defining to this feeling that... uh, I am an empowering manager. I've gotten that feedback over and over and over again through my career. The other one that, that is, was a moment that was the emotionally most powerful moment I've ever experienced in my career, other than helping a patient and, and getting that feedback of, of literally saving someone's life. But from a leadership perspective, when I was 34, 35, uh, I ran New England states for Bristol-Myers Squibb. We had just finished up a performance review cycle and we had done... Just sort of a silly little thing of mapping. We measured people's objective performance versus what they were supposed to do on, you know, from low to high. And then we measured how did they act? What were their values? Were they a huge team player? Were they trying to help others? Very innovative. So values was the other axis. And we just plotted little points on a graph with a few hundred people. So that was, I, I had that right in front of me. I was in my office into the office walks this guy who was the number one objective performance, number one in values, is this far right outlier on the chart. So I rush over. His name was Steve Cunio. I rush over to Steve and say, hey, Steve, you know, we just did this exercise. I really want to get your feedback. You know, here's objective performance. Here's value. Where do you think you are? I didn't think I asked a trick question. Steve looked at it and he looked at it and, he almost had that lost feeling that he didn't know what the answer was. And so after what seemed like a really long time to me, maybe it's 30 seconds, he just pointed to the dead center of the cluster and said, I think probably there. Steve was a 55 year old man that had been doing his trade forever. The new uh, people that joined the company said, you know, who stands out most to me is this Steve Cugno. He's," They called him the Senator. He was so polished, so wonderful, so helpful. I said, Steve, let me tell you, this is you, this dot way up here, the top performer. Let me tell you why you're the top performer. Let me tell you what you do. Let me tell you why you're so great and why everybody loves you. And I just want to tell you, I really appreciate that. Marty, what do you think happens with that guy? 55-year-old, super polished, the best at his trade. Everybody knows it. He starts crying. He breaks down crying in front of me and says, Jeff, Nobody has ever told me that before. I didn't know. How does that happen? How does somebody be that great and not know it to the level that, he would, that it would break him into tears by being told that he was wonderful and we so much appreciated him? And it kind of dawned on me that the easy thing to do is tell people what they don't do right. The hard thing to do is acknowledge people truthfully. It's one thing to say, hey, you're great, It's another to say, this is why you're great. These are the things that you do specifically that matter. And watching him break down in tears made me realize the power of feedback, of positive feedback, not just coaching feedback, and how important that is to people succeeding. And I think what we'd find is if we focused more on the great people, as opposed to trying to fix problems all the time, we'd probably get a lot further along. That was definitive to me in in, it creates a mental note. Always when I'm working with people, I want to make sure and tell them why I appreciate them, what they do right, because it's so well-received. It's so powerful. It's so, it allows them to enjoy themselves. So it's great.
0: You've talked about your management style and what leadership you believe is. What do you look for in the people that you work with?
1: It's probably evolved over time, but I, I do have two things that I tell anybody that starts working with me. These are the really important ones. I believe in really transparent communication. We can't fix challenges. We can't face risks as a team unless we know them. And if we hide the things that go wrong or hide risks, we're just living in a fantasy world. So my first thing that I talk to people when we start working together is there are no surprises. Bad news is fine, we'll work on it together. There are no surprises. Don't ever let me find out about things that are in your shop from somebody else. You've got to be the first person to tell me because otherwise we just can't work together, that's one. The second one is if you agree with me a lot, I can never trust you. Just have it in your mind that you have to disagree You have to say no. You have to say, Jeff, that's a stupid idea sometimes, or we can never have a really honest relationship because I do that a lot. One of my strengths is I'm very creative. Hopefully 50 point something percent of those are good ideas, but I guarantee that high 40s are stupid ideas. I need all of us to say so. I can turn that around, Marty. There was one moment back in my big pharma days where the president of the U.S. for Bristol-Myers Squibb took me and one other person out to lunch and said, I'm about to launch a really brilliant idea. It's going to revolutionize everything. And he walked us through it over lunch and then goes, what do you think? Now, you and I talked earlier about, you know, the safe thing to do is say, hey, great idea because it doesn't put you in personal jeopardy. I couldn't do that. And I said, Mike, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And the other person goes, Mike, that's never going to work. You're going to go down in flames on that one. And again, because, you know, emotions are powerful. Mike, who's president of the U.S. for Bristol-Myers, gets a little teary-eyed. He stares down at his plate over lunch for a long period, and he goes, that's why I went to lunch with you two. I needed that. Thank you for saving me. And we never did it. It seems like the wrong thing to do, but I would say it's always the right thing to do, is just be honest. And so, back to my two rules. No surprises. Let's have open communication, honest communication. You gotta say no, you gotta say, call things the way you really see them because that's the way you create value in life.
0: Great advice, great advice. As busy as you've been in business, as successful as you've been, you just took your family on a a special vacation. And I know balance is also important. And your family is important because we've talked about this to a number of people on the podcast. For us to succeed, we have to have a support system. We have to have people that are on our side that are going to understand the sacrifices we make and make sacrifices with us. So this was a culmination, I think, this recent trip. Could you just touch on that? Because I know when you talk to people, there has to be some balance in their lives, too.
1: Start with an anecdote. When I was in Wharton at grad school, the last professor, and he knew he was the last professor that was going to speak to us before we graduated, said, I'm going to tell everyone something really important right now, and none of you are going to listen to me. We've got the ground rules out there. Think about people that you know that have retired, and how many of them say, wow, I wish I would have spent more time with family along the way we all know that yeah okay ask yourself this how many people do you know that retired that say wow really wish i would have spent more time at work through my career nobody why is that because you're all gonna screw this up you're all gonna go out there and be alpha you're all gonna work so much just don't forget no one ever finishes saying i wish i would have spent more time at work it's always i wish i would have spent more time with family and it was nice. Nobody listened, I don't think, but at least it was sitting in the back of our minds. It certainly did for me throughout the course of my career. And now on the other side of that, I find it was true. I wish I would have spent more time with family. Nonetheless, it was, it's really important to do that. Without going into the details of it, about as much fun as I've had going on vacation, I just took 10 members of the family, including kids and grandkids, on a mystery vacation. The joy of it was watching their joy at being surprised every step of the way on something that was really quite nice. I was so pleased to be able to provide to people. And uh, that really is what it's all about is the people that sacrificed along with us as we build our careers and are supportive of us. And having that support enables greatness. Having it is critical. I've appreciated it so much.
0: Two final questions. With everything you've accomplished, what does the future look like?
1: (laughs) In what aspect, Marty? For the world?
0: Well, because in your mind, based on this conversation and what I know of you, it never stops up there. There's always things that you believe can be better because your goal is still the same as it was when you first started and you made that decision not to be a pharmacist and to go on and to help people. That never stops in your head. So as you see the future for you, is it a day-by-day thing and we see what comes or what's out there?
1: So I would say I have, I have three buckets of focus. Four, I should say, family is the first one. Then it is, I just can't let go of the thrill that I continue to get every day with how science is evolving to be able to extend and enhance human life. That's my tagline. And so staying with the science, staying at that forefront through my associations in biotech is is really important to me. And so I spend time every day reading. I spend time every day thinking about where things can go. And that's super fun. A third bucket is... While I've retired from operating roles, being CEO, uh, I've tried it three times. This one's for real. I'm not going to lead a company anymore, but there are a lot of people that have become my good friends and colleagues that are still doing it. And so I still help in several ways with that. And along with that is participating on boards and, and being able to lend advice on a, in a formal way. So it's it's helping colleagues that way. And then there's a fourth bucket, which is the mentoring stuff. i continue to be on faculty at Purdue, and I'm gonna keep doing that, the Harvard Business School thing. And then I also have situations where I've been brought in to help a brand new CEO who comes from a science background, who is a first-time CEO and needs to learn how to manage a big organization, how to manage a board, how to raise money from venture capital to be able to fund the work that needs to be done how to interact with uh, the government, et cetera, where I've lived those. I've got the scars to prove it. And in some ways I can short circuit the learning trail by helping them just walk through their most pressing issues. And so I'm doing quite a bit of that. Friends here are teasing me saying, I thought you retired. You're still working all the time. Well, I don't know that I can separate out who I am from what the future will hold, but it's exciting and no matter which And
0: the way. intellect doesn't retire. You have these ideas and ways that you can be helpful to the bigger community. Last question I ask everybody, what would you tell the 20-year-old Jeff Hatfield?
1: Well, I know that you ask that at the end all the time, Marty. And I thought about that, and my answer is nothing. Because the thing I would be most tempted to say is the fear that you felt along the way the challenges that you faced along the way, the, the tough situations, I'd be tempted to say, don't worry, it'll all be fine. But that would be terrible advice. There is a vulcanization, a stealing that comes about by facing those challenges and not knowing the outcome, but working as hard as one possibly can to be able to overcome them, that I fear if I, if I did give that advice and if it was taken, changes the outcome. I wouldn't trade any of the challenges that I've experienced, any of the hard times I've gone through. I really wouldn't trade any of those away. And in fact, I often reflect on where I came from to keep me grounded in what the future will be. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that one.
0: Jeff, I really want to thank you for doing this today. I think it's been very, very informative for sure. But it's also given us some insights into some aspects of what we've dealt with On the surface, anyway, I know there's a lot more detail to it and what we can expect in the future. I think, too, from talking to you, I really respect that you've always been true to your goal. That's never varied. How it happens may vary. I think there is advice that one can give is to be true to yourself and to always be working towards what you believe your ultimate goal is. But thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Marty. It's a great pleasure to work with you on this. Thanks. Jeff, thanks for sharing
0: your experiences. It definitely has been informative and enlightening to us. And thanks again to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, the ultimate authority on the Bighorn community, Back Nine Greens, who can give the outdoor area of your property some real art, and Corliss Estate Wine, whose wonderful wines are available for you at our facilities. Enjoy a glass or a bottle of their fine wine soon. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories very soon.